1: Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversations of the tech world and beyond. Well, you're all in for a treat today, we're nearing what everyone is calling crunch time for the big tech antitrust bills. And, you know, we want to get a look at what's happening inside Washington right now when it comes to big tech and the way that Congress views these companies. And who better to do it than Senator Mark Warner? He joins us today from his office in Washington. It's been a heck of a start to the year. Lots of stuff going on. Senator Warner, welcome to the show.
2: Alex, thanks so much. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's hard to imagine that it's only um, January tenth.
1: I was just looking back at what was happening last year, and like week one was the Capitol riot. Week two was impeachment. Week three was the inauguration, and week four was uh, the GameStop rebellion in the stock market. And <laughs> it's just like. That was such a crazy month and it feels like um, things haven't really slowed down. It just keeps getting, you know, more and more intense.
2: It it, it does. I mean, we've obviously got um, – and part of this is due to Congress's fault of inability to kind of get our act together. But, you know, the current things, at least in the Senate, are how do we put forward a, a bill to protect voting rights as we've seen state after state restrict voting rights and frankly even go to the point of saying – Certification of elections. Let's turn that over to a partisan body. Uh, that that's wacky in my mind. And then uh, mm. we are still struggling uh, on the second half of the president's agenda, the so-called Build Back Better. You know, as somebody who was very involved in the infrastructure bill, that was a I think a home run for the country. Glad it was bipartisan. Uh, uh, the, the second half has proven to be a little more challenging, and uh, I'm trying to work with my friend Joe Manchin to see if we can figure out a way to get the yes on at least some version of that.
1: Right. And, and it's amazing that even still, there's there's room for tech stuff, uh, and that's kind of where we want to take sure. this conversation. And I think there's two two main questions here. One is the advisability of regulating these companies and how you do it, and then the second one, I think that's you know super important. And we'll get to it in the second section. Is what's stopping anything from going through? Uh, you personally uh, introduced legislation in 2017. Um, you know, we'll talk about that in the second segment. I want to hear what's happening with it. Um, but why don't we start with uh, the advisability of of regulating these companies? So for can your I just list- throw- yeah, go ahead.
2: No, just for your listeners, my background was I was yeah. in the tech field for twenty years. I was longer in the tech field than I've been in the political field. Um and you know, I think for a long time, both political parties, starting you know, roughly early two thousands, became such techno optimists. You know, traditionally Republicans have been less regulatory. The Democrats, particularly under Obama, you know, we were, we were all gotten thralled with the power of these social media platforms and the kind, the kind of, you know, Silicon Valley mantra of break things and feel up, figure out stuff later. <laughs> um, you know, served these platforms well. But I think we now have this holy heck kind of moment of, gosh, unlimited power. To these platforms, which have as much power as any company in, in, in history. I mean, I think if you think back to the 20th century analogy of the, the major trusts, the railroads and some of the banks and so the steel manufacturers who had huge power, that power is, is actually small compared to the power that Facebook or Google or Amazon have. So uh, I do think, um, there is a, a recognition. And I say this again as somebody who's a venture capitalist. It, regulation per se is not going to, um, stymie these, these innovations. Uh, it's not going to stymie, in, uh, stymie, uh, I think, um, uh, new discovery. Uh, we do need some guardrails because while Congress is abysmally behind, I mean, as you mentioned, I put my first kind of low hanging fruit bipartisan tech regulatory bill in place about five years ago. The fact that it's still not been acted on, that bill was called the Honest Ads Act, which would simply said, you ought to have the same disclosure requirements for political ads on the internet as you have on TV and radio. Not exactly a a huge leap, uh, but we still haven't been able to to move on it. Although most of the the Facebooks at all have actually self-enforced that. But this idea that you're going to have a light touch regulatory, which in terms of tech is meant a no touch, or we're going to give the platforms the ability to self regulate I just don't think is is cutting it, and you know while I'm critical of Congress, I would also point out that other than privacy legislation, which our European friends have done, and obviously California and we've done a variation of this in in uh, Virginia and certain other states, in terms of content regulation or data interoperability or Knowing the valuation of the information that you're, that you are giving up to these platform companies, all legislation I've, I've put in place. It's pretty interesting to me that even the EU or the UK or some of our friends in Asia, none of them have been that successful as well as putting up some kind of regulatory framework. Um, I think from a kind of a big picture standpoint for so many years, the rest of the world kind of relied on America setting the framework, regulatory framework around technology uh, as we made so many innovations came out of our country. Even if we didn't in- innovate, we got to set the rules, procedures, protocols, standards. Um, you know, I could take you I- industry after industry how that's been the case. But our failure to act has, uh, I think, has serious long-term negative repercussions for us. But it's also shown that the rest of the world hasn't been able to act as well.
1: Right. And the stats that I was going to read out talk about like how important these companies are uh, to the American economy. So here's one. Um, In 2015, Amazon employed around 230,000 people. Now it's over a million. For Apple, it took more than four decades to reach trillion dollar status. Two more years after that to hit two trillion and about 17 months after that to hit three trillion. There's a lot of talk, you know, in the tech world that Congress acting to restrain these companies is going to kill like one of the good things about the American economy, something that is uh, increasing people's retirement portfolios, you know, the Apple example and employing lots of Americans. How worried are you about, um, about messing with that success? And I know there's a good reason to come in and, and, um, and try to restrain these companies, but I'm curious how much of your calculation is about, is, um, Take that into account, especially given your experience working in tech yourself.
2: Well, all of these companies have a global footprint, and I am, cons- I am kind of macro picture concerned that if we completely disable these mostly American-based enterprises, uh, that they would simply be replaced by, you know, Badu and Tencent. And Alibaba, you know, there are Chinese type equivalents mm-hmm. who have even less restraints on them, who collect even more information. All that information is shared with the Communist Party in China. And when I mentioned China, it made me clear my beef is with the CCP. It's not with the Chinese people or Chinese Americans. And I think we have to draw that distinction. Um, but you know, we've seen that tech world in China in collaboration with the Communist Party create a surveillance state that would make Orwell blush. So the, Yes, we have to be careful about what happened if we we don't want to turn off the American companies and cede the field to the Chinese. But the notion that you know, what these companies unbounded are able to do in collaboration with their government is a pretty scary notion, and, and it directly it directly is counter to kind of American or Western ideas about liberty or transparency or freedom or privacy. So uh, while I'm concerned about the the Chinese companies filling the gap. Um, It's not enough then to say there's not, shouldn't be some guardrails and, and where those guardrails, I would argue they fall into three or four buckets. Let me very quickly go through Mm this. First, there are a whole questions around privacy and it's, and it's crazy that we have not put a, an equivalent of GDPR here in, in America, you know, and, and, There's basic agreement. The only thing that's holding up a national privacy bill, in my mind, is who gets the right to sue, you know, this private right of action versus attorney generals if there are violations of that privacy. You know, I think that should be resolved. But but it's again, it's a sad state of affairs that we've not put some privacy requirements in place. And that clearly does not will not undermine uh, the, the ability of these platforms to do well. The second would be the areas where I call pro-competition, because I do think we have way too much concentration. And while I celebrate Apple's $3 trillion, and we're very proud in Virginia to get Amazon's second headquarters, and these these companies have power that is, I've never seen in my lifetime. And again, I would say even Trump, what happened in the beginning of the 20th century when before the Roosevelt and the so-called trust busters came about. You know, and what would those pro-competition bills look like? Well, one would be data portability and interoperability. If you get tired of the way Facebook treats you, you ought to be able to easily move you all of your data to a new site, the same way for as an old telecom guy, number portability took place, and then still be able to, as you move to new co, still talk to your friends on Facebook in an interoperable way. That would be a very pro-competition um, uh, standard. I think as well, um, the idea that we ought to know what our data is worth. I, I think there's nothing morally wrong with uh, Facebook or Google sucking information out of us and then marketing that. But as you know, we ought to realize we are, we are the product, not really customers of these platforms and having us become at least knowledgeable products that we know my data is worth X and yours, Alex is worth Y. That would be a good. A good piece of information for a more transparent market. Third would be, there are certain things like so-called dark patterns. And this is a rare place where I can talk about these kinds of things that mm-hmm. so your audience would understand it. The kind of manipulative tools that these platforms use oftentimes to not let you see another view or not exit off of a, of a service, we ought to prohibit those. So I would call those areas around uh, around pro-competition. How can we, you know, non, non antitrust, but simply see, put more competition into the marketplace. The third area, privacy, competition. The third is content regulation. And this goes to the heart of Section 230. Section 230 in the late 90s, which gave these platforms total immunity, made sense maybe at that point. But as these companies now are the biggest in the world for them to be able, no matter what kind of violation takes place on their platform, um, to suddenly say section two thirty is this blanket of immunity doesn't make any sense. And there are approaches that others have got that says, let's look at the algorithms, let's look at bias. My approach is saying, well, let's let's at least say whether it's, you know, civil rights discriminations or providing injunctive relief or not giving total protection to advertising. We'll still give you the free right, free speech, right to say stupid stuff over the internet and not be penalized for that, but I'm not sure that right expands to having it then amplified 5 billion times. But let's take actions that are otherwise illegal and say Section 230 does not give you a blanket set of immunity. It would still mean you still have to prove the case. You still have to go to a court and get an injunctive relief or demonstrate that there is a, a civil rights violation. Uh, but I think that around content moderation uh, that protects First Amendment is, is a third. And then final area, are the whole host of antitrust bills uh, that go from full breakup to questions that say simply some of these platforms shouldn't be able to favor their own products over other products. Um, and, and in that area, there is some bipartisan agreement. Chuck Grassley, my friend Amy Klobuchar, has got a bill. Yeah, I'm a co-sponsor. It's It needs some work. It's not perfect by any means. Uh, but that would be the fourth category. So, you know, let's again, privacy, pro-competition, content slash 230 modification, or antitrust breakup, are the four areas of regulation. And I think um, you know we will see action in one or two of those areas this year in 2022. The one thing that particularly Facebook has managed to do, which is uh, kind of hard to do, is they have created a bipartisan consensus where Democrats and Republicans actually agree on something. And that is mm-hmm. that the current status quo with Facebook just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. And so the thing that the one that's most advanced of those four categories are those antitrust bills that are actually antitrust bills that are out there. Um, And again, as I mentioned at the top, it looks like by August, we're either going to know whether they're going to go forward or not. Um, But, you know, it's interesting because you look at some like the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, which would prevent some of these companies from using data that they acquire from people that have to go through them to compete with those other small businesses, or the Platform Competition and Opportunity Act, that's one that is going to limit companies' ability to acquire smaller companies. And when I think about these, I do wonder what's the standard that um, the government needs to use or Congress needs to use when it comes to passing legislation. Because the question is, do we wonder about um, protecting the consumer? Some of the things that you were talking about, privacy regulation, they focus on the individual. Whereas like some of these bills focus on promoting competition between Companies and typically in a capitalist system, you let the market figure it out. So, do you think we're in the middle of a shift here where we're starting to pay more attention to the competition between business and less competition, less attention to you know protecting the individual? And is that a, a shift in the way that we look at antitrust in America right now?
2: Well, Alex, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm not sure I would draw the distinction that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. We do want to see a competitive marketplace where we don't have too much concentration of power. But traditionally, antitrust has been about you know, giving the consumer lower prices. And clearly, uh, you know, Amazon, for example, has provided lower prices. Clearly, when you've got Facebook and Google that say they, they don't even charge, quote unquote, you know, those are lower prices. But the short-term lower prices versus the longer-term implications that when you know, they have total dominance of the market, their ability then to set subsequently higher prices or ratchet up—you uh, know—changes the kind of antitrust mindset from you know what's going to happen over the next twelve months to how do we have to look at this concentration of power on a five or ten-year basis? I think it is appropriate to look look out not just in in terms of of uh, immediacy. And I do think there is both a inherent challenge when you have a market that is completely dominated, um, by a single player. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I think in terms of, of, and I say this, you know, I respect Amazon. I'm glad they're, they're building, you know, their second headquarters in Northern Virginia, but their ability to take down Martica vertical after vertical um, you know, that gives me a pause. Uh, you know, should we have a delivery system on, on grocery and food? Yes, absolutely. But should they be able to own sector after sector without, without, uh, competitive forces? Because when you've got such scale, the ability for a new entity to, to come in is dramatically undermined. As, as you know, and your audience may mm-hmm. know, is, you know, I spent a long time as a venture capitalist, uh, mostly in telecom, but somewhat in the IT space. And for a long time, as we grew companies, they could either grow to maturity or we could, you know, we could sell them to a larger player. Uh, I know, at least in the IT and uh, in the data space, you know, talk to my friends in, in um, uh, that are still venture capitalists. You know, their only exit for many of their firms is to these large players. There is no alternative. You can't ever get to scale. Right. And, and there's no other, nobody else to sell to. So this concentration of power continues, uh, continues to expand. And, and, uh, um, you know, and when these companies have the power, frankly, when they, when they have global footprints and power in a sense to, uh, ignore national governments, I think they can't completely ignore our government. But I, I, I think Facebook has kind of blown off a variety of smaller com- countries' views when, you know, I think about what happened in when Facebook, advanced the, uh, uh, the the aims of the Burmese military, doing which the Burmese military wanted to have them their people kill the Rohingya, and Facebook acknowledged they did some bad stuff, but there was nobody to bring them to heel. I'm not sure that's the right thing to have uh, going forward. I, I think about all the you know the science fiction movie and James Bond movies that we've all seen over the last 20 years. Usually, the bad guys are not some national country. The bad guys are usually some hmm. corporate or company that has gotten outrageous amounts of power. And not not to go over the top, but some of these companies with their power may not be bound by any rules or regulations. And that's, again, why I think at least putting some guardrails in place, not stifling innovation, but actually promoting more innovation um, so that there can be people that can you know, take these companies down a peg or two uh, in the marketplace would actually, would actually be productive.
1: Senator Mark Warner is here. We've talked in the first segment about the advisability of regulating big tech companies. I think there's some really good arguments to um, explore legislation and we might see some pass in the United States. The thing that I find uh, especially fascinating is why we haven't seen anything happen yet. We've had a lot of hearings, nothing passed. Let's get to that in the second segment. We'll be back right after this.
0: Imagine this higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
1: And we're back for the second segment here with Senator Mark Warner on the Big Technology Podcast. We talked a lot about the potential for regulation and why it might be advisable when it comes to big tech companies. And certainly, we may see some movement in the next couple of months. But I want to know why we haven't seen much up till now. And Senator Warner, with all due respect, I feel like we keep seeing, you know, hearing after hearing of senators calling in these big tech company executives. We just saw it happen with Instagram after the revelations from Francis Haugen. And I wonder if the Senate's going to start to lose some credibility on this stuff, because, you know, you can only bring these executives and scold them so much um, if nothing actually happens. Uh, and it doesn't seem like anything's happened now, is that a concern for you as well and why haven't we seen any movement absolutely it's a concern and let
2: me um, um let me give you i think three reasons why we've not seen action first and and we talked about this a bit in the in the first segment. these companies are kind of our national heroes in terms of uh, uh, of innovation and Um, You know, obviously have huge global global footprints. And I believe for a while, both political parties were so enamored with the possibilities, the upsides. We 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 became enamored with this idea that technology was going to increase people's power, independence, what have you. And, you know, and couple that with the traditional Republican opposition to regulation and the love affair between the Obama administration and big tech. And you had for a while where we only saw the upside of these companies and didn't see the downside. In many ways, I think the beginnings of seeing the downside was the Russian manipulation of Facebook in terms of their interference in our 2016 election when there was like this holy crap moment. Yes, there's good things, but with these this huge social media network, there is a dark underbelly. But it took a while mm-hmm. uh, when both political parties were kind of – um were kind of enamored with big tech. The was also, piece
1: is, just to quickly jump yeah. in there. I mean, it, it does seem like the Democrats were thrilled about using data to advertise on social media, but then they lost and all of a sudden turned yeah. against it. What well, do you think I, about that yes,
2: but I think there was also, the, I think mm-hmm. none of us, and I'll put myself in, in uh, uh, this, this position, failed to understand how Facebook was being manipulated by Russian agents. Um, you know, in a way to try to skew the elections, and I, I can still remember very distinctly when it, you know, as, again I saw this from being on the intelligence committee, where shortly after the, the elections in November, uh, you know, of 2016, and I said I thought this was going on, and Zuckerberg famously said, you know, any on poli- paraphrasing here, any politician that thought the Russians were manipulating us, you know, is just ignorant. Um, he had to eat those words and he apologized to me profusely months later when they saw what level of manipulation, but there was this, you know, we only saw the good side. We didn't see the bad downside. So that would be number one reason why we haven't moved. Number two reason is um, a lot of my colleagues don't understand this stuff. There have been some pretty, I won't call out their names, but uh, your audience remembers where senators would bring tech CEOs come in and you know, vividly demonstrate that they didn't understand the technology, they didn't understand the business model, uh, and just a a lack of of knowledge of how these systems worked, um, uh, and and consequently, when politicians are are less aware of the specifics, they. They got it uneasy. I mean, we're seeing a little bit of a duplication mm-hmm. of that take place around the, the emerging cryptocurrency debates right now where yeah. a lot of the folks just don't understand it. So I think there'd be ignorance as a second category.
1: I think you guys are doing better on that. Um, I think their level of uh, questioning has definitely gotten better in, in recent hearings, but it was kind of wild to hear senators say like, how can I send an email on WhatsApp or WhatsApp is a messaging app or the, how do you make money? Yeah. Yeah. Or,
2: yeah. Or, or like, how do you not charge? Right but the, is there some algorithm that spits out some information to your ad platform and then let's say I'm emailing about Black Panther uh, within WhatsApp do I get a WhatsApp do I get a Black Panther uh, banner ad
1: Senator we don't Facebook systems do not see the content of messages being transferred over WhatsApp Yeah
2: I know but that's that's not what I'm asking I'm asking about whether these systems talk to each other without a human being touching it
1: Senator, I think the answer to your specific question is if you message someone about Black Panther and WhatsApp, it would not inform uh, any ads.
0: OK. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service?
1: Senator, we
2: run ads. I see. So I think ignorance is second. The third is, um, you know, under Obama, under Trump, um, you know, many times when we talk about concentration issues or tech regulation issues, some of it's done by Congress, but a lot of it some, is oftentimes done by administrative process, whether it be you know, the SEC, the FCC, the FTC, all these alphabet uh, mm-hmm. agencies. And for both Obama and for Trump, uh, the executive part of our government did squat. Now, mm-hmm. you're seeing Biden put a lot more people particularly on the FTC, which has some of the antitrust implications in place. Um, uh, So the failure of the executive to actually have a position, and I still think this is where I'd be critical of Biden. You know, he's put some people in place, but you know, I should know this as a ally of the administration, but who's in charge of tech policy out of the White House? I don't know the foggiest idea. Really? So the the, the failure to have- Why not? Well, Well, they just have not been clear on that. Now, again, this first year, they had a lot of other things on their plate with the virus and with, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to get infrastructure through and these other bills. But I think, you know, people's patience is wearing thin with the administration about when they're going to articulate a clear policy, which you can be for or against. But having the president weigh in, especially when you would talk about legislation is terribly important. And then the final thing, and this, I guess I've said there's three, but there is a fourth. Uh, and, And that fourth item is these tech companies have been damn good at hiring great lobbyists, yes, you know, former members of Congress, others, and what what they 've managed to create is not the traditional trade association, but if you follow the money in terms of who funds a, a whole host of new think tanks that have cool sounding names with you know serious scientists or serious researchers I- engaged with these think tanks, but frankly they are they are advocates oftentimes for the big tech position. They are not mm-hmm. the kind of independent uh, uh, think tanks that um, we sometimes look to in DC.
1: Yeah. We've been following the money on, on big technology and it is amazing to um, see how many uh, institutions there are that are funded by big tech. I mean, here, let's go through some names. Progressive Policy Institute. Does that sound like a tech front group or does it sound like a uh, you know an independent group that wants to advance democratic causes? What do you think?
2: You know, i you, you i know these groups so i'm not you know i'm, I'm going to i'm just going to say uh, yeah, most of the ones about, you're going to name yeah. are going to be ones that 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 if you follow the money they uh they may be progressive on certain points but when it comes to protecting 230 when it comes to protecting right. the, the bailiwick of these entities um
1: they're not independent chamber of progress similar amen. stuff right?
2: <laughs> amen
1: it it strikes me that we have this problem in the united states of um Anytime there's a big business or a um, you know a, a big industry, they end up funding the third parties that set the agenda here. So here's here's some examples. I pulled this off of Healthline. Uh, the American Diabetes Association gets support from Dan and Yogurt, which you know you would think that dairy might play into it. The American Cancer Society receives support from Tyson Foods, uh, the Susan G. Komen Foundation. Uh, received support from Kentucky Fried Chicken and Yo Plate, the American Heart Association, and this one really surprised me, received support from the Texas Beef Council. And of course, you know, here's a, a classic one that Purdue Farm f- f- uh, funded, the American Pain Society. You know, we see all these issues with, with um, people spreading, you know, you've highlighted it, disinformation on social media, um, people believing the wildest conspiracy theories. But don't you think it's a problem that, you know, we're losing trust in our institutions uh, because so many of the conversations and the agendas are being set by, um, you know, the companies that they're supposed to be reigning in.
2: Yes. I think this is a, um, uh, a huge, a huge problem. And, um, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, the center from Rhode Island has, you know, this is probably his, you know, one of his top two issues, uh, the, the problems with, uh, dark money, the ramifications that came out of the Supreme Court case called Citizens United, where this kind of dark money could float not only to candidates and in their supporting organizations, but also allows a lot more um, hidden money to flow into organizations, as you as, as you pointed out, uh, that um, you know, where some of these funders may be actually directly counter to what mm-hmm. the Particularly as you mentioned around some of these disease state organizations, um, what their mission ought to be, and and how you you the the incredible value that comes from the internet of being able to source lots of different voices and lots of different ideas uh, is, is a tremendous upside. But it also means that we have no common sources of knowledge. And it really puts a burden, I think, on, on new citizens. I think about my kids mm-hmm. who are in their 20s and early 30s, you know, where they have to go to find the truth is a much harder challenge than what I had when I was in my teens and tw- 20s, where, you know, you got one version of the truth that may not have been 100% accurate, but there was, you know, the three major TV networks, uh, and, and you know, old folks like me always cite, you know, the Walter Cronkite effect. You at least kind of thought there was some edit, editorial um, there was some fact checking and validity, uh, indicating that would come out of that. And, you know, and I, I do believe that, that this kind of massive of voices that we're, that are coming at us now over the internet, you know, that this, this problem of misinformation, disinformation, you know, some of it does lie at the feet of Donald Trump, who, Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, I've never seen anybody in public life or for that matter in business life who had such a powerful position and so little regard for factual, objective truth.
1: Right. Um, And then I guess like one of the questions is like that people start to believe lies when they don't believe that the government's going to work in their favor. So, and and in particular, like if it's swayed by these groups um, that are fronts for big business. So is there anything that, you can do? Would it even be advisable? I know we have a First Amendment, so we have to think about that. Um, But is there anything that the Senate can do to start to prevent some of this dark money from flooding into these organizations?
2: One of the things that um, uh, we are working on trying to build into um, this voting rights legislation, because as, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a number of these, number of states are trying to not only cut back on the ability to do early voting, or you know the idea that if you're waiting 10 hours in in line to vote, you know you, as in Georgia they've said we can't give you water while you're waiting in line, um, you know that is clearly an effort to try to discourage people from voting, or turning over the results not to an independent body but to a partisan body to decide who wins on a particular county. That ought to scare the hell out of us. But what we tried to include in that legislation was a prohibition on some of these dark money rules Mm -hmm. that came out of the so-called Citizens United case. I think combining that with more transparency on the funding sources of these organizations who are advocacy groups, you know, I think Americans can then make their own decision. I'm not saying you can't fund that group, but you ought to, it ought to be a lot more transparent and there ought to be a lot more like, all right, who's behind it? And, and we saw this uh, uh, again, you know, beyond kind of corporate interest malaligned, but the number of of, um, of items that still appear on the internet that mm-hmm. are being promoted, for example, by bots and trolls out of Russia or by, you know, other foreign sources to amplify messages that are, uh, frankly, one, not true and two at their core, trying to divide us more as Americans. Um, that is a, much, remains a much, much bigger problem than mm-hmm. um, I think most folks realize. And one of the things that I'm trying to get is the is the intelligence community to be more forward leaning about sharing what we know about who the sources of some of this misinformation, uh, who the sources are, because um, I think that would be uh, illuminating for Americans, um, regardless of their political stripe.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think we should all see that stuff. Lastly, on this topic, don't you think that uh, members of Congress and the Senate shouldn't be trading individual stocks. Uh, we we see it um, all the time where like, you know, if you're tasked with uh, regulating these companies or if you even have a whiff of like what's happening on, I'm not saying you in particular, but I've spoken with, you know, former members of Congress who said they know that, you know, members, they've, they members, the new colleagues that were day trading in their offices. Yeah. Um, I, so what do you listen, think about
2: that? I, I am, yeah. was very fortunate. I, mm-hmm. I did, I was in the wireless business. I started a company called Nextel. I, you know, then became a pretty successful venture capitalist during the 30s. So I've had the luxury that most people don't. Let me acknowledge mm-hmm. it. You know, coming into public service first as governor and then as senator. Um, and I put all of my, my assets in a trust. And mm-hmm. we don't, you know, we don't, I don't, and that trust doesn't buy any individual stocks. Now we've had companies that, you know, I've invested in 15 years ago that ended up going public. That we you get a stock distribution and then the trustee sells it quickly. So you know there's occasional transaction because that just you know the, the the process that takes place when you invest in a startup. But I absolutely do believe that, that uh, members ought to um, uh, restrict themselves from playing in the market. There's there is a law that's called the Stock Act which requires you to disclosure. Support, yeah, but it's it's um, its enforcement has been a bit spotty.
1: Right. Yeah. There've been people who have just kind of totally ignored it. I think uh, Ted Cruz was pretty late in filing some of his stuff. And of course, like elections go by and voters can't make decisions. But I wish that it wouldn't be up. It wouldn't have to come to voters deciding whether a corrupt member of Congress is going to stay or, or leave. It seems like you should be pretty in pretty good shape if you're able to just buy like a total market index.
2: Yeah, that's or right. Or the but,
1: S&P 500.
2: Yeah, well, that's again, you you, you or buy, you know, uh, a fund that's it could even be industry specific, but it needs mm-hmm. to be a broad base where, you know, where the member doesn't have any, um, have any you know, say, Now, you know, I will get, the I will have colleagues say to me, well, you know, that's easy for you to say, well, you're already rich, you know, so what means that I, if I'm a member of Congress, I can't, you know, participate in the market. So, but I think, um, you know, you, you, if you take these jobs of responsibility, mm-hmm. you have to be willing to give up something. I do think the ability to, you know, Trade and particularly on a day trade basis, just, uh, just even if you're not doing anything wrong, it looks bad.
1: Yeah, it's crazy, and also like they could get rich just by you know investing their money in if in the broad index funds. With so the S and P was up more than twenty percent last year. That's yeah. a pretty good return for anyone.
2: Although, again, I'm, I, I would. I'm not sure we can project forward the last yeah, two to three years of the market right. on a, you know, it, it, you know that inflation is not going to go away if we continue to compound the stock market yeah. 20% gains over the next 10 years.
1: No doubt. But I guess like to to be more to be more specific about it, picking individual stocks rarely, you know, beats the market unless you have an angle and members of Congress have an angle. So yeah. go with the indexes. Yeah, well, I
2: right. also think it's, you know, I, yeah. I've always um, felt that uh, – you know, all these folks who come pitch my trustee or, or others about, you know, what mm. better returns. Um, uh, I think the stock pickers, you, you look at their, you look at their averages against the, uh, the actual returns of the market over the last five or 10 years. And, you know, is time and again, you know, picking, picking a market-based fund is both cheaper and probably has a better return.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I, I you know, I know that there's a lot of resistance, including from Nancy Pelosi, but it would be nice if, there was a push in, in that direction somewhere in, in the Senate to get that done. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your experience with the Honest Ads Act. You know, we've talked a lot about the associations, the reasons for why things get blocked. This thing came out in, in 2017. Um, what was, yeah, I guess like from the inside, what was it like trying to get support for it? How did the companies fight it? Uh, do you think, and, and what do you think is responsible for it being stalled? Is it these well, agencies, or yeah? Yeah,
2: yeah well, let Go me ahead. let me um you know, again, start with a a very short description Mm -hmm. of what this bill would would do.
1: Um, I appreciate you setting the context. Usually it's the guests that jump in without, and I have to set it. So
2: you're an amazing guest. Thank you. The the, the current (laughs) rules are, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you are, and and everybody's heard this, if you hear a political ad that is, um, you for a candidate or for a cause, you know, The candidate always says, you know, I've paid for this ad or you have to disclose who's funding it. Um, And that has been the case, whether it's a newspaper ad, a TV ad, a radio ad. What we saw in 2016 was that there were Russian groups actually uh, helped, partially sponsored by the Russian government and some of their spy services, placing ads on Facebook and paying for those ads in rubles. (laughs) It wasn't even like they tried to hide it and paid for it in dollars or euros. And these ads would pop up on Facebook and um, not reveal who the source of the funder was. So we saw this. um, We said, let's do the lowest least denominator, what should be the simplest no-brainer requirement that says if you do a political ad, you ought to have the same disclosure requirements on the internet as you have on TV and radio. Um, the late Senator John McCain was one of the co-sponsors. Amy Klobuchar, who was the chairman of the Rules Committee, was my other co-sponsor. When John McCain died, Lindsey Graham became the co-sponsor. So bipartisan. On this one, um, the challenge, and I hate to call out an individual member, but the Republican leader, Senator McConnell, um, has been absolutely against any type or form of campaign finance reform. Hmm. Um, this is just a, a red line for him, and quite honestly, he uh, he stopped his um, uh, Republican senators from from co-sponsoring that. And then again, it was it, I guess there was a little bit of a time there that it would be at least a a um, bit of a slap at Donald Trump, since Donald Trump was benefiting from some of these these ads. So we put forward the legislation. We thought it would pass. Um, McConnell stopped it. And what ended up happening was Facebook then endorsed the ad and they've said they would, you know, they would have this kind of disclosure. And they've done about 85, 90% of it. Still, they've got an area where they categorize and a consumer can go look at all the ads and look at who's supposedly funded them. It's still not that easy to get at. It's not that transparent. But this is a case where since we didn't pass legislation, The company, Facebook in particular and YouTube to a lesser degree, you know, has, has self regulated and put some, some of this process in shape, in, in, in place. But I actually think this is an area where Facebook would have welcomed the legislation because, you know, people like me and others will still criticize them. If there was a law in place, they could meet that law's requirements. And, and, you know, if we didn't write the law the right way, they, you know, it would be not their foul. It would be our mistake. Uh, so I think this is one of those areas where, um, you know, reasonable regulation the industry would even welcome. Let me let me give you another quick example of a, mm-hmm. uh, of a bill that we put forward that um, that again just kind of blows your mind. That if you have evidence of a foreign government trying to interfere uh, in an election, uh, there ought to be an obligation to tell the FBI. Hmm. Um, you would think that you know if you're seeing potentially. A crime taking place. Shouldn't there be an obligation to tell the FBI? We couldn't even get that passed. But let us let me also say that this is this is not just happening in in the the social media realm or foreign interference realm. Uh, I, I bet you don't know, and and probably your your audience doesn't know. And uh, this is right now that if you are a critical piece of our infrastructure, if you're say the Solar Winds firm, which you know had eighteen thousand companies and had their product. Uh, and critical to the supply chain. If you have a major breach, the way SolarWinds was attacked by the, the GRU, the Russian spy agencies, um, you have no obligation to tell the government. So luckily in the case of SolarWinds, they did, or luckily in the case mm-hmm. of Colonial Pipelines, when they were hacked with ransomware, they told the government. But what you didn't find out is that that you know, there was another p- pipeline that had been hacked at the same time. They never told the government. So the reason you need to tell the government is not just so that the government can try to go after the bad guys, but they can warn other people in that sector. Now, we finally have gotten legislation that's been bipartisan. It should have been put in the, the defense bill that just passed a few weeks back. We will get it in. But this is, again, another area where I think the vast majority of Americans would think, well, of course, if, um, you know, somebody breaks in and, and If it's critical infrastructure and the bad guys are inside, you ought to tell, you know, you ought to tell the police, you ought to tell the FBI or in the case of telling the government, it's called CISA, the the, Mm -hmm. the cybersecurity agency. Um, And we would give the company immunity. We would give the company confidentiality, but we need that to share then with other private sector partners. So it's, there are a lot of areas where legislation has not kept up with technology and consequently we are more vulnerable than we should be.
1: Yeah. And quickly before we leave with the other big tech uh, antitrust bills, um, how how much of a full court press are you feeling from these tech companies and their agencies? Do you get calls from their CEOs? What's the state on well, that?
2: I know many of the, the CEOs and, and most of them, you know, How I often
1: does Zuckerberg call you and try to be like, well, hey, media,
2: I've gotten pretty frustrated frust- you know, <laughs> with Mark over the years, you know, you know, but with yeah. Apple or Google or others. Um, and, and, you know, for example, there are some leg- legitimate questions on one of the bills that i'm working with amy and, and chuck Rassley on about you know, not allowing a platform to give priority to its products over other products mm. um so that's what the legislative process is about though if there are if there's an idea here let's go ahead and you The old-fashioned how bill becomes a law. Let's have committee hearings on it. Let there be a discussion at the committee. Try to work at try to work out some of these problems. It goes to the floor. There's a debate on the floor. In our legislative process, you in the past at least did a halfway decent job of working through problems as an idea becomes a law. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. our process has broken down a lot where bills are skipped over the committee process and brought directly to the floor sometimes without enough debate and you consequently end up with products that uh, and, and sometimes bills that have got unforeseen consequences. My hope is we go down this this potential antitrust product process and I'm not at the extreme end on the antitrust process. I do feel like complete breakup might seed the field to the, some of these Chinese firms, but I do think there are some of these first steps, that we ought to take. I also think there's a lot of these issues around pro-competitiveness, you know, data portability, interoperability, banning dark patterns, um, trying to let researchers have more visibility into the algorithms these platforms use. That would would be short of antitrust, but that would still give consumers a more transparency and frankly, give new startup companies a better chance.
1: Gut feeling is something going to pass this year?
2: Hey, listen, you got to stay optimistic in this job. So <laughs> I will make the bold prediction. Absolutely. 2022 is the, uh, is the year that we're going to put at least some guardrails around big tech.
1: Okay. Senator Warner, thanks so much for joining. I want to make sure you get to your next meeting on time, but I appreciate you coming in and giving our listeners and myself an idea of what's happening in, in Washington and the state of affairs when it comes to big tech. Thanks for joining. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Nate Guatney, for editing the audio. Appreciate it. Thank you, Red Circle, for hosting and selling the ads. And thanks to all of you, the listeners, for being here. If it's your first time, we do these every Wednesday, Tech Insiders and Outside Agitators. So please hit subscribe. If you've been here for a while and like the show, a rating would go a long way. So if you could rate us, that would be great. Uh, We will be back next Wednesday with with a new edition of Big Technology Podcast. We hope you join us for that. Until then, take care and have a great week.